0: Well, this has indeed been an interesting day in skype and digital media broadcasting. We are um, a couple minutes late for this program, and uh, I'm not even sure if we are live here with our guest, Dr. Kent Bottles. Kent, are you there? Hi, Greg. Can you hear me? I can hear you. So um, just to give a little uh, explanation for what's going on here, um, I think this is perhaps a first. We've got, um, it's 1104 Pacific time and for a good part of the morning here, the Skype, the uh, VOIP program Skype has been offline in in multiple areas and we're one of the areas that was affected. And Apparently, with uh, with the Skype being down, many people trying, many of the hosts on Blog Talk Radio trying to access their programs were using the direct dial number, and that was, uh, the volume must have been locking some people out. Anyway, at the very last minute after the program began, Skype became available, so I have dialed in. <laughs> anyway, um so let uh, let me back up here and uh, and uh, and start. That uh, welcome to the broadcast. I'm Greg Masters, your host. I'm known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru, and the publisher of the blog acowatch.com. This is the fourth broadcast in the weekly series ACL Watch, and midweek review where we monitor, analyze, and discuss the emergence of market entrants as accountable care organizations the expected regulatory guidance and ongoing industry buzz. Today, I'm delighted to have as my co-pilot, Dr. Kent Bottles, who joins us for an encore conversation. Dr. Bottles has been a president of a Minnesota Healthcare Collaborative, a chief medical officer of a large health system, a medical school professor, a chief knowledge officer of a biotech startup genomics company. He is now an independent consultant, writer, keynoter, And a noted medical blogger. Welcome, Kit.
1: Thanks for having me back, Greg.
0: Love it. Anyway, thanks for enduring the drama here. Kind of last minute, uh, last minute kind of maneuvering to get this thing on. So, um, let me. um, So, so not only is Washington above with its version of a two minute offense on the legislative front. In the ACO we're witnessing the release of several key pieces by some major authorities, such as the Center for American Progress, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the Trophy Journal Health Affairs, all addressing key aspects of ACOs. Uh, this follows a series of regional listening sessions that were sponsored by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, throughout the United States. So there's a lot of activity that's going on right now. I think perhaps the one that may frame some of the conversation is a report that was issued by Price Waterhouse Coopers, uh, this year's top industry issues, and they drill into ACOs. And I just want to kick off a couple of these bullets, and then we'll, we'll get your thoughts on them, Ken. The first one is uh, the thing that strikes me the most is, the, is that uh, less than 28% of the consumers, less than 28% of the public, are even familiar with the concept of an ACO. you have any thoughts about that?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I think one of our biggest problems is not just on this subject, but on the whole idea of how we get our health care There's a really big gap between the so-called experts and the policy wonks and the public. Um, Kaiser Family Foundation did some polling on this about a year ago, and you know, unless we can, unless we can bridge this gap, this chasm almost between healthcare policy experts and the public, I don't think even if we had the perfect bill, which we don't have, anything would work. I mean, for example, in the Kaiser polling. Experts say that about 30% of health care is unnecessary and waste. The public, 67%, say they don't get enough tests or treatments. Um, You know, the experts uh, believe that there are big differences in the quality of care between different hospitals and different providers. 70% of the public say there's no big difference in quality among the doctors in their area. Um, You know, experts say that ratings of hospitals and doctors should matter, The public says less than half would pick a surgeon rated higher by the experts than one that their family knew well. Um, And last but not least, experts, as you all know, uh, like Greg, are worried about that health is consuming too much of our GDP. 44% of the public say all they care about is what they pay for health care, and they really don't think about whether it has an impact on the economy. So it doesn't surprise me that the public doesn't really understand what an accountable care organization is. It doesn't really surprise me that they don't know that we have to decrease per capita cost and increase quality, but I do think that this big gap between what people that study the issue believe and the public is really a big problem. Um, You know, the public often seems to want whatever is the newest and most expensive, most technologically advanced, um, and most expensive treatment, and those aren't aren't, all, are not always the best for your health.
0: So, so let me ask you this: Are we just talking to ourselves as we have a tendency to do in this uh, sometimes overly um, hierarchical healthcare provider culture that we're in? Well, you
1: know, it may not just be the healthcare culture, Greg. I mean, I think it may be how divided we are as a country. It seems to me that we're kind of. Divided right down the middle, about half the folks are conservative or tend that way, and about half the folks are more progressive. And one of the problems that I addressed in a blog uh, yesterday or the day before was this idea of the echo chamber. If you only talk to people that agree with you, then you're surprised when other people uh, don't think that an individual mandate is constitutional. Or if you only watch Fox News if you're a conservative, or if you only watch Rachel Maddow if you're a liberal – then you're surprised that people have a different view of it. And I think we'd probably be much better off if we made sure that we tried to get and understand the legitimate points of view that that don't agree with us. I mean, what I try to do, I'm not sure I always do it successfully, but I try every day to read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times to try to get at least sort of a a more business approach and then a more progressive approach to the same stories. And it's really interesting how they – approach the same kind of story in those two different outlets. So I think part of the problem is the echo chamber, and we really need to start talking and listening to each other and not automatically turn off something if it comes from a liberal or comes from a conservative. So, But th- this, this gap is huge. Now, I'm actually a little bit surprised and heartened that so much is getting passed right now on sort of a bipartisan basis in the congress. I mean, in the last few days the don't ask don't tell was repealed. It looks like the start treaty is going to be approved. Um so it it it's kind of interesting that that even though Obama lost the November election rather badly, um it looks like a bunch of his things are getting passed in the in the lame duck session.
0: So I guess that's either a good or bad thing based on your ideological prism. <laughs> Or the echo chamber you subscribe to is another way to put it. Um, yeah, that, that is interesting. There is a lot getting done. Um, le, let me ask you this. The other uh, these bullets here, only half of consumers said they would, I guess out of this 20, this less than one in three who actually connected with an ACO what it meant, only half of consumers said they would stay within an ACO-like organization for all of your care. Does that mean anything? Well, I think it means,
1: again, that uh, the American public uh, is entitled or feels entitled to be able to choose their care. I mean, that obviously was a big part of the backlash about HMOs was, uh, you know, one of the ways that you can control costs is to narrow your panel and to try to, um, you know, not have total choice. So, again, I think that we're going to have to, as a society, try to figure out and come to terms with the fact that we have to decrease per capita cost and increase quality. But do people automatically like that? No, that doesn't surprise me. But I think it is a big challenge for all of us that are trying to get healthcare spending under control.
0: So clearly there's a huge consumer education piece here. Um, I, I don't know whether the CMS is going to release uh, any of the transcripts, whether they're audio or, or, or text of their listening sessions, but according to CMS, that was an opportunity to listen not just to the sort of informed stakeholders, the providers, payers, et cetera, but also presumably get some community input. Uh, it will be interesting to see what, if anything, if they in fact do publish, which I assume they will. What, if any, consumer input there is, because that's a big big part of the challenge right now. Well Let, let me shift a little bit, and we can go anywhere you want with this, but w- one of my questions one of the things I tweeted about in advance of the program was this, whole, this notion of do physicians, as the primary organizers of an ACO, do they need to work with a hospital partner? Apparently that's optional in the law and really comes down to more of a business decision on behalf of the organizing physicians. What's your take on it?
1: Well, I think in most places um, it would be ideal if you had the hospital and the physicians working collaboratively. Um, You mentioned that there's this new uh, California Foundation report out on hospital physician integration. I thought it was really well done um, and, and kind of traces the history of in the 1990s there was capitation and the PPM expansion, and then between the 1999 and 2004, a shakeout and reentrenchment. Between 2005 and 2009, a focus on market share, and now we've got payment reform. I think in most parts of the country, um, at least most of the parts of the country I've been visiting lately, you have the hospitals and the doctors trying to come together and figure out a way that they can – not necessarily all have the, the uh, physicians be employed by the ho- hospital system, but have perhaps a hybrid system. And you also mentioned that article out of Health Affairs, which I thought was fascinating About Advocate. It looks like Advocate's put together a fairly um, robust and successful, at least so far, um, accountable care organization, taking into account that there's a lot of small independent practices that um, the voluntary medical staff structure doesn't work, um, and that basically fee-for-service doesn't help them create the ACO. So I don't think you're going to see everybody immediately go to a male Clinic model where you have um, employed physicians on salary. I think what you're going to see is a hybrid model where what you're going to have are some employed physicians, there will be more, and then some private practice physicians that will have to come together with the hospital. Now, the, the tricky part is you really are going to have to cooperate, whether you're an employed physician or not, if you really want to make an ACO work, because as was pointed out in that Center for American Progress, what, to make an ACO work with global payments, you really have to emphasize primary care, taking care of folks when they get an acute illness so they don't need to be hospitalized. You want it in a global payment situation, as you know, Greg, prevent all but the necessary hospitalizations because you've already gotten a global payment. And what I was impressed about by the advocate folks, as they reported in health affairs, that they really have got not just a governance structure, they seem to have a culture that's working. They said that between 2004 and 2005, the partnership is what they call it, removed more than 50 physicians because the physicians refused to use the IT system that Advocate thought was essential for making the ACO work. So that, I thought, was impressive. I think the Advocate article is an example that you don't have to go to a totally employed model. You can have a hybrid model as long as you have the culture and governance organization so that you can get all of those folks having better coordination of care, only doing the necessary tests, not having readmissions, and trying to avoid having people be hospitalized. So I think you're going to see all over the place, some places go and have total employment, which obviously in some ways is easier to govern. I think in most parts of America it will be more like the advocate system where you'll have a hybrid system of both employed physicians in the hospital system and then other private practice physicians that decide that they're going to have to cooperate so they can be part of the global payment.
0: Absolutely, I think that's a very powerful uh, example. Of, uh, I don't know that the, the public at large can necessarily understand what that means for them to take action at that level to remove them, but that's a, that that lets them know that it's an entity that has teeth and that they are serious about their mission.
1: Well, and I think I think that's a big issue. As you know, I'm a big uh, fan that that, and, and I was interested that all the articles that you referred to really talked a lot about governance. They really only passingly, if at all, talked about culture. And the culture that you have in a private practice group of five or six docs is quite different than the culture that the physicians are going to experience when they become employees or just have to cooperate in a service line kind of way with the hospital. So I think culture is going to be one of the huge factors that decides whether an ACO is successful or not. And I'm afraid that most places have not really attended to that in the way that I think they should.
0: So tell me what um what would you uh what would you follow that with in terms of their prescription of things they should do on the front end here.
1: Well, I think that having a a really frank discussion over several weeks between the medical staff and the hospital about, as you said, I mean, I don't think it's just the public that's uneducated about ACOs, Greg. As I go around the country and talk to physician groups, I'm finding that a lot of physicians haven't really kept up with this concept of either medical home or an ACO. And really, um, again, I think it's, it's a factor of a lot of doctors are just trying to see their patients and do a good job and take care of their their patients, and they kind of feel like that that the health policy experts, if you will, have cried wolf so many times that they often just kind of don't listen as all these new things are gonna come out and change the way that they practice medicine. I think this is different. I think this is a big change. I think the law is a big change, but I don't think that most physicians have really tumbled to that yet, and so you mentioned that there's a need for a big educational campaign for consumers. I think there's a, and also a big need for an educational campaign of physicians and hospital administrators on exactly what it means to be an ACO. Because if you think about it, assuming some financial risk, much better coordination, how do you divvy up a global payment, those are all competencies that I don't think most physicians are comfortable with. And as you know, and as was pointed out in the California Foundation article, you know, the history of of hospital-physician integration is a rocky one. Um, Hospitals and doctors don't always see eye to eye. There's often a lot of differences of opinion about what should be done, and there's not, you know, total trust, as you know, between doctors and hospitals. So I think one of the biggest things that has to happen is a really frank discussion between the medical staff and the hospitals um, about what uh, accepting a global payment means and about what it's going to mean to decrease per capita cost and increase quality. And one of the stumbling points, I think, is in the past when we've had doctor practices bought by hospital systems, the hospitals have lost money on it and the physicians have expected to be made whole. I don't see how you can go forward with an ACO that decreases per capita cost and increased quality without both the hospital and the physicians losing revenue. And if you don't deal with that in an honest, transparent way, I think you're just going to have trouble down the road.
0: Now, that's an interesting question. And I think the um, my, gut, my gut response is, you know, absolutely, that that's the paradigm that you're going to work harder perhaps for less. But I wonder, I really wonder if 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 we've got two point three trillion dollars in the pipeline already, you know total health care spending and it, and on the low end, twenty percent perhaps on the high end, forty percent is inefficiency, waste and fraud uh what if we just took out those uh those bad business models, you know the unsustainable variety and reallocated the dollars available Does, does, does that mean that everyone has to work for less, or might there be some winners?
1: I think there may well be winners, but remember, one person's waste is another person's revenue. And so it, it makes it very tricky as you try to deal with this stuff. I mean, the article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about spine surgery and about relationships between medical device companies and surgeons um, A lot of us look at that and say, boy, that looks like that that may be a component of the high cost of medicine. I bet you those orthopedic surgeons don't see it that way. And so, you know, people that have have experienced making a fair amount of money don't always react rationally and um, happily when that's taken away from them, even though the rest of the community sees it as, um, at best, waste. So again, one person's waste is another person's revenue, and I I bet you it's going to be a a tough decision about how you divvy up that global payment. And and again, I don't think that I think it's better to admit that hospitals are going to have to deal with less money, and that physicians are going to make less money as well, especially specialists. Perhaps some primary care physicians will make more money uh, than they have been in the past, but. I think physician reimbursement is going to go down.
0: So you mentioned that article, which I believe is Norton Healthcare and uh, Medtronic.
1: Well, there was a large article in the Wall Street Journal, I believe it was yesterday on the front page, talking not just about Norton, but there's one hospital in Louisville called Norton um, where uh, much of the spine surgery is done, and it appears that there's money flowing from the medical device company to uh, physicians for what's called royalties, um, but it, it, it's interesting, and, and the issues are many, but do all of the patients know that the, the physician that's putting the the, the, uh, the devices into the patient uh, is getting uh, money from the, the manufacturer? In some cases, I believe that hasn't been transparent in the informed consent process, and that creates uh, problems of trust between the physicians and and the uh, patients they're operating on.
0: So, so what I find interesting there, and I was happy to see you surface that, that issue, is uh, I believe Norton Healthcare and Humana just recently announced that they were joint venturing an ACO. So I, I'm wondering if the left hand and the right hand are working across purposes here.
1: Um I really don't know anything about that so I can't really comment on that.
0: Okay. Well, it's been in the news and Humana and Norton Healthcare are I guess it's one of the first uh, payer joint venture ACOs that that's on the docket right now other than the demonstration pilots. It's uh it, it's announced. So anyway, just 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 a thought. Um what about this general idea? If, if it's not, if an institutional partner uh, doesn't necessarily have to be a hospital and could be a pair, do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Well, you know, I, I I think that maybe we are short-sighted to assume that every ACO is going to be uh, physicians and hospitals working together. I mean, I think what, as I've read the laws and the pilot programs, um, I think what they're saying is it could be anybody, anybody out there with its. Uh, long-term care facility or physician assistants or nurse practitioners or whoever, whoever can take care of a population in a way that works, in a way that, that uh, decreases hospitalizations, decreases unnecessary testing, that takes better care, does better job on prevention. I think what they're saying is, boy, we'll let anybody give it a shot, and if they can hit the cost targets and the quality targets, then they can be an ACO. And it makes some sense. I mean, if you think about it, if you go back to Clay Christensen's work in the innovator's prescription, I mean, his whole thing is that if you can take some of medicine and make it into a, an evidence-based guideline or an algorithm, then you could have uh, nurse practitioners or you could have uh, physician assistants, uh, you know, follow that guideline. And, and they might do it in a way that's, that's uh, more rigorous than physicians. I mean, physicians haven't been um, very good in some cases at following evidence-based medicine guidelines because they object to cookbook medicine and and like to say that there's an art to medicine uh, and and really haven't, in some cases, really uh, gotten on board with the whole idea of dimming and duran that one of the ways that you improve processes is to decrease variation. I mean, that's a fundamental concept in dimming and duran quality is that you have to decrease variation, and sometimes physicians get confused about that and say, well, that gets in the way of me treating each person as an individual. So I'm not sure. I bet you most ACOs do have hospitals and do have physicians, but it will be interesting to see if anybody else comes out of the woodwork uh, to do a better job of, of taking care of a population for a global payment.
0: So we only have a little more than a minute remaining. I'm sorry about that. But um, you did your first broadcast on This Week in Healthcare, muddling through. Do you want to spend a moment about that experience?
1: Oh, yesterday I did my first uh, blog talk radio show, and it was fun. I mean, we just tried to uh, every week we're going to try to take a look at the the most uh, important news of the week and give some analysis and see if we can make sense of this fascinating Rapidly changing world of healthcare.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll uh, put a plug in for that. I think it's a great idea. I love the idea of having a segment called Providers Misbehaving. What a concept.
1: You know, (laughs) Um, but Greg, it's not just providers. I think everybody's going to have to change.
0: Oh, no doubt. I mean, Christian t- talked about, you know, the unsustainable business model for your average uh, community hospital. There's got to be a lot of reengineering that goes on. I mean, it, here, here's five of the most valuable hospital CEO trades for 2011. This is published in Becker's. One, a desire to partner with physicians. Two, ability to develop a culture of accountability. Three, transparency. Four, diverse background. And five, entrepreneurial spirit. There's a lot of risk-taking that needs to be Done here, and hopefully we'll try and do it a little bit differently this time. Anyway, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Kent Bottles, one of the uh, uh, thought leaders in the in transformation of our healthcare system. And next week, where we'll have we'll do a primer on ACOs for physicians. Thanks again, Dr. Bottles.
1: Thank you.